Welcome to the PA Books Podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, Nicole Egan, author of Chasing Cosby. Nicole Egan, author of Chasing Cosby, The Downfall of America's Dad. When along this process did you decide you should write a book about it? I first started thinking about it um, back in January, not in January 2005, back in 2005, after I started covering the case when it broke in January 2005. Um, I, it wasn't until a, few, a couple months into it um, I thought about it because I thought, you know, this is an extraordinary story. There were all these other women coming forward. But then, of course, the DA Bruce Castor, with like just a month investigation, decided not to charge Cosby. And I just felt really strongly that there was a larger story to be told. But, um, you know, I just came to the conclusion that there was no publisher that would have published it back then. He had way too much power. And he was able to get the rest of the media to back off the story with a combination of threats and promises. So I knew he could do the same thing to publishers. And he had published his own best-selling books. So there was just a lot going against it um, back then. And, of course, back then nobody wanted to hear about this. Why write it now? Why well, write it now? Um, mainly because I found myself in a situation where um, I could write it. I, would, I left People Magazine in, in June of 2017. I found out I was, quote, re-engineered, unquote. Um, the day the first Cosby jury went to trial, I was one of 300 let go that day. And um, I just decided I really wanted to do a book. I'd been, again, approached about doing a book in 2014 when this scandal exploded again. I was getting a lot of pressure by some agents to do books, but in the end I said no because I knew I couldn't do it and work full-time and still do my job at People Magazine. And again, I wasn't convinced that it would ever get published because my magazine was still very scared of him and still scared of being sued by him. And as we found out later, like with model Janice Dickinson, in her 2002 memoir, she wanted to put in there that Cosby drugged and raped her, but her publisher wouldn't let her because she said Cosby's known as being very litigious. And even if you could win a suit like that, you'd spend millions defending it. So this was the atmosphere. And I just, you know, after what I was up against in 2005 covering this story where I was getting threatened on a daily basis and the DA was threatening to have me arrested for my stories and then media turned on me, um, I just... But I had the backing of my newspaper. They completely backed me on all my stories, and they refused to back down to Cosby. Um, I just really didn't think there were many publications that would go to bat and stand up to someone like him. In fact, to this day, I, can, I will tell you with absolute certainty that the Philadelphia Daily News is the only newspaper in the country that would have let me pursue this story in 2005 the way they did. And why now is because I feel like there is so much misinformation out there mainly propagated by Cosby and his spokespeople. Um, Andrea Constant has been trashed repeatedly in the media with lies upon lies. And I felt like there should be a place where people can go to to get the whole story in one place, the truth. So this, scan you know, this book covers from the day the scandal broke in 2005 through the sentencing. And it also incorporates a lot of his past into it as well and how, you know, his growing up in Philly and his, you know, the um, town halls he was doing, the call-outs to the black community that he was doing in the midst of this scandal breaking in 2005. So you were working for the Philadelphia Daily News. When did you first 
hear something and you thought, oh, this is a story. It wasn't really, it was crazy because um, I was a huge Cosby fan. I grew up watching Fat Albert and the Cosby Kids on Saturday mornings with my brother. I loved the Cosby show. I write about that in the, you know, prologue about, you know, why that show meant so much to me. And um, I was a fan. Uh, but I'd also done, uh, I'd spent about a year and a half investigating sexual misconduct in the ranks of the state police, Pennsylvania State Police. So I knew a lot about sexual assault cases, and I'd done an expose on drug-facilitated sexual assaults when they were spiking at the Delaware Avenue clubs in Philly. Um, so I knew a, I had a lot of background on it, but I never expected to be covering those same allegations against America's dad. So what happened is on um, January 20th, 2005, it was a Thursday, Harry Hairstone from Channel 10 broke a story about these allegations against Cosby. And he, um, and they, my bosses assigned me to it immediately. I was a crime investigative writer. They would put me on the big stories of the day. And my initial reaction was not the cause. I mean, I just was like, there's, come on, there's no way this is true. And they weren't releasing her name because she's, of course, a sexual assault victim, and you're not supposed to do that without the consent of the victim. But I had sources at Temple University who told me who she was. Because so, my first inclination was, like, we know who he is, or who we think he is anyway. Who is she? Is she even in a position to know him? Um, what was she, how did she come to be at his house that night, if that's how it happened? And so that's where it all started. And when I spoke to sources at Temple University, I, I quickly found out who she was, that we didn't use her name, unlike the rest of the media, until she gave us permission, and um, that she was very credible that she was very well thought of there, that the people there were completely shocked and, and blown away about these allegations. And they know that, to, they said, all I know is you don't say anything about Bill Cosby and Temple University without thinking real carefully about it. So, but they, she had a great reputation there. She was very well thought of. And that was the first, and then once I had her name, I was able to do clip searches on her and found all these stories that had been around, around her basketball career. Because she was one of the top, um, basketball players and high school, high school basketball players in Canada. She had been recruited by 50 to 60 colleges in the U.S. to play, ultimately choosing the University of Arizona. So there were a lot of stories about her athletic career that I could look to, too. And it just, all of it just was not adding up to someone who would come forward with a false allegation against, especially someone like Bill Cosby, this revered father figure, America's dad, who just had this public Teflon image. So that's where it all started. When when the media deals with a, an allegation against some public figure, how do you decide if it's news or not? I mean, anybody can accuse anybody of anything. So when you hear an accusation of something against some celebrity, how do you sift out the allegations from something that's credible? Well, first of all, the, the first thing is, did they go to the police? Were they willing to go to the police, make a statement, get up in a court of law, take an oath, and say, this happened to me? That's, that's the first thing, because that's a huge step. I mean, a lot of places have been reporting allegations where no one gave statements to authority. Everyone that I reported in 2005, and there were 14 women total in 2005 accusing Cosby, um, were willing to, gave statements to authorities or to Andrea's attorneys, and they were all willing to testify in court. And to me, that, and also the ones that I spoke with wanted their name and photo used. And that's a big tell to me as well, because, you know, why, it, it's a huge, Put it this way, nobody wants to be famous for being raped. This is the most awful crime that can happen to a woman, pretty much, and it's unilaterally usually viewed with skepticism. And to come out with that allegation against a man like Bill Cosby takes a lot of courage. And so you have to look at that, too, and what do they have to gain by it? None of these women had lawsuits. None of these women wanted to file lawsuits. None of these women were trying to get money from him. 
Um, Andrea, in fact, as I started to report, had been offered, after she went to police, Cosby's people offered, Cosby himself offered to pay for her education because she was in massage therapy school. She didn't take him up on it. So if she were truly out for money, she probably would have taken that offer and, you know, not cooperated with police and this case would have gone away. Like a similar case had gone away. There had been a very similar case five years prior in New York City. Involving Bill Cosby? Uh, involving Bill Cosby and involving a woman making similar allegations. She was a teenager. How did the story first become a news story? I mean, if it, did, who because found out about it and, and made it a news story in the first place? Um, Harry Hairston apparently had, so, see this case, like Andrea filed her police report in Canada because that's where she lived. They referred it to Philadelphia erroneously because they thought his house, was, Cosby's house was in Philadelphia. And Philadelphia had it for four days and then sent it to Cheltenham police. So um, during those four days, you know, the Philadelphia police department has leaks and my understanding is uh, he had a source that told him about it and that's what he report but he had the police report because of course once it got in Cheltenham they were always very good about giving you police reports unlike in Philly where you usually don't get copies of them so what you know Harry reported it and my understanding is you know is there was a lot of legal wrangling that went on with his station before they decided to air it what was your first story about this case like what did it, what did it read like what were you um, I wrote a very just, you know, that this Canadian woman has accused Bill, Bill Cosby of drugging. And I think the initial allegations, we didn't have a lot of details, were groping her. And so, um, and I had responses from his attorney in there. I talked to Thornhill Cosby, who was his uncle and used to be head of the Philly NAACP. And, you know, that was the story. It was a very straightforward, this is what's being alleged. Was there much public reaction? Not that I recall, but remember, this was 2005. So, you know, we didn't really have a website that was any good. There was no social media. If anything, you might get calls and letters. I did start getting a lot of email tips on other, th on other things about Cosby and some letters and things like that. But I, I don't remember, and my stories were going out on the Knight Ritter wire back when there was a Knight Ritter. So they were showing up in newspapers across the country. But I don't remember this huge sense of outrage. Uh, one of the characters in your book is Bruce Castor. Can you explain who he is and what role he plays? In and I, I had known Bruce for years. Bruce Castor was the Montgomery County District Attorney at the time. He's very much, uh, he would hold press conferences at the drop of a hat. He's very good on TV. He's very telegenic. So he loved publicity, while at the same time sort of having a disdain for reporters. And he was the one who was going to make this decision about whether or not to charge Bill Cosby. But it was odd because he was very, un he was uncharacteristically silent about this case at first. This broke on a Thursday night and the first press release he put out, and it wasn't a press conference, unlike what he normally did, was like three or four paragraphs long and he gave it on Monday, that four days later, to just the reporters working out of the Norristown Courthouse. And the next day we got it. And in it it made, it said basically something to the effect of we will look at this investigation to see if the, he should be charged or anyone else. So it was already a veiled threat to charge Andrea herself with a crime. And then he didn't do an actual press conference till January 26th after they'd interviewed Cosby. So and they put out another press release. So um, when he decided not to charge him, um, but not a press conference. So his behavior was, was not the norm. And it just seemed like from the very beginning he wanted nothing to do with this case. How many stories did you get out of this in, in back in 2005, 2006? I told I, and you remember, it was, the investigation was only a month long, 30, 30 or so. And I left um, that fall of 2005, I left the Daily News. That was, at that point, Andrea had filed a civil suit um, 
So that's, that was making its way through the courts. That was really the only thing that was left was this civil suit. And I had left and um, taken a buyout from the Daily News and was freelancing for People Magazine. And again, thinking about writing a book at that point, but ultimately realizing that there's no way any book would ever get published. What was the upshot of the civil suit? It was uh, defamation, but it was also sexual battery. Because Andrew, his, his representatives had leaked, leaked stories to a news agency called Celebrity Justice saying that um, Andrea had gone to him, that Andrea's mother had gone to him before Andrea went to police and tried to get money out of him. And they called it a classic shakedown. And this was a follow-up to a story I'd reported exclusively that Andrea had taped calls that proved she was telling the truth. And so then Cosby's people, and it said sources close to Bill Cosby. I'm not like making this up. <laughs> you know, there's no d doubt it was them. And then the second story Celebrity Justice did, they said they had a quote from Marty Singer, Cosby's attorney, saying this was a shakedown. So that's why they added the defamation charges. And then Cosby subsequently did his one and only print interview with the National Enquirer. And again, he disparaged Andrea and, and made comments about people trying to extort, you know, you try to help people and they try to get money out of you. So that's why defamation was added. And that was the end of it? No, I actually got the first interview. It was exclusive and it was on the cover with the second accuser, California attorney Tamara Green. And, and this was in, th in 2005. Yeah, it ran February 8th, 2005. And um, a couple of days later, she was on the Today Show, and she did a whole round. And then as a result, other women started coming forward. And I later found out that Kester's office never bothered to interview most of them. So there were 14 other accusers. And Cosby, I mean, Kester kept referring to these taped calls as illegal wiretaps. But as I just found out recently through depositions in a defamation lawsuit Andrea filed against him, his first assistant, Risa Furman, had researched the issue for him back then in 2005 and told him these were legal taped calls because in Canada that you only need one party to consent. But Castor kept referring to them as illegal wiretaps even though he told his first assistant to research it and she did and told him this is all, this is legal, he wasn't interested. So if it was Recorded in Canada where one party Person consent consented. was legal, it could be used in a Pennsylvania yes. courtroom? Yes. Is it both parties have to consent in Pennsylvania? I'm not sure about Pennsylvania's law, but Canada's is, is, is one. So why did the story settle down after that? Well, first of all, um, the media backed off it very quickly because, of, you know, for whatever reason, they didn't want to anger Cosby. Um, Bruce Castor, you know, made it clear from the beginning he, with his first press conference that he didn't seem to have much faith in this case. He didn't, you know, he was disparaging the case pretty much in his one and only press conference on it. And so, um, and, the, and the media was, was not covering it, <laughs> was not really covering it anyway. Like the, um, it's where I first heard the phrase trading up because I was a guest on a lot of shows like uh, Greta Van Susteren's show and Dan Abrams show and MSNBC and they told me they were getting a lot of pressure from Cosby not to have me on the show. And that's where I heard the phrase trading up, that you give up one story to get a better one. And ABC never really covered the case except for one story um, about Cosby um, saying that what happened between him and Andrea was consensual. And then they got the first interview with him that following May and they got inside one of his town halls, which is when he was going into the inner cities across the country and lecturing the black community about how to behave. And you had to be invited in as a member of the media. You couldn't just show up. And they asked, um, and ABC was inside one of those town halls and then got an exclusive sit down with them. 
And that's the carrot. See, that's what they're, because at first that's what they said to me. Oh, we got to get you into one of these town halls. But that offer quickly went away as my coverage got more aggressive. So they, there was a combination of the carrot and the stick. So the carrot was, we'll get you into one of these town halls. And I think that got a lot of media to back off. Because the Washington Post didn't run a story till after the DA decided not to cover him. And it was, they'd been inside one of the town halls. And it was mostly about that. And none of them were covering it at all. And the AP, when they would cover it, it was always, because I looked back at these stories when I was writing my book, it was always leading with, you know, like Cosby's defense attorney for the stories about the criminal case calling the claims bizarre and preposterous. That was the lead on their story. When they wrote about Tamara Green, it was a day and a half after she came forward and it led with Cosby's spokesperson disparaging Tamara Green. That was the lead of the story. So because Cosby had this way, they also still wanted access to him. You know, they didn't want to anger him. This goes on a lot with celebrity media. Um, there's a lot of trading up and there's a lot of backing, especially among the national media, backing off of stories um, in order to get a better one. So news organizations will agree to not interview somebody on one side of a story if they can get somebody better? Yes. Yes. Or not agree not to cover the story at all. So it, it uh, well, oh, I have to read you this part because you say about... Um, about uh, sexual assault and having and reporting on it, you say defense attorneys are not allowed to use tactics uh, in court where they question a woman's sexual history, but it, unless they can show it's relevant to the case, so they've learned to leak it to the media instead. Mm -hmm. Were you ever on the receiving end of leaks like that? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, what happened was after Tamara Green came forward, um, the California attorney, you know, I'd done a pretty thorough search on her records. I'd gone to Cosby's people to ask them for a response. And then when her story came out, they leaked, um, a th <laughs> okay, I shouldn't say, I don't know, if they leaked, but the, the New York Post all of a sudden had this copy of a bar complaint that had been against Tamara, a 13 count bar complaint. And a Cosby lawyer was sending it around to the media and it, I still have the emails. And I did a story about it and also had the names and phone numbers of two attorneys they said that they could call that had negative information about Tamara. And so I actually did call them. They never called me back. And then when I was on Greta Van Susteren that night, she actually reached one of them. And she said all they, all they had to say was that she was annoying. <laughs> and the thing is that got me is, like, they clearly had this information before my story ran. And, you know, had they made me aware of it, I could have at least discussed it with my editors and we would have discussed, is this relevant to her story or not? It really wasn't because this happened 30 years after she said it happened to her. But that's the way a, clear, you know, a common tactic used to try to discredit sexual assault victims with things, other things in their past that they may have done or not done when they have no relevance to the sexual assault. It doesn't happen with any other violent crime. If you get mugged or you get robbed, no one's looking around to see if you, you know, bounced a check or if you got a DUI or something like that. But if you claim sexual assault, watch out. You better not have any skeletons in your closet. And the ironic part was is that Andrea didn't have, she's that rare person who somehow managed to get to age, you know, 20, 30 years old with no skeletons in her closet. So what the Cosby pe people did is they made up lies about her and leaked to the media, like that she had, that her mother had gone to them and tried to shake them down for money before they went to police, which was not true. So they just made up lies about her and the media ran with it. Did you ever interview Andrea? Um, not during this whole process. I never, ever spoke to her until and the sentencing. We sort of had a moment in court after, um, the, at, after the second trial where she turned around and she looked at me and she just mouthed Nikki. <laughs> and I said, yeah. And she just sort of nodded her head and she went, long time. And I said, yeah, 13 and a half years. I mean, in all my years, I'd always gone through her attorneys. Mm -hmm. I was, that's what I was supposed to do, you know, because 
Um, she she was bound by an NDA once she settled her lawsuit. She an couldn't NDAs. talk anyway. No, oh, sorry, a non-disclosure agreement. Mm -hmm. When she settled her lawsuit with him in November 2006, she signed a non-disclosure agreement, so she wasn't allowed to talk about the case. You started in the book how you, you read something, this is quite a few years later, and you went down to the basement where you, for eight years, you had this box of stuff. Why, why the eight-year lull? I mean, what happened in 2006 that caused it to quiet down? And well, it was really interesting. Um, so in November 2006, Cosby settles his lawsuit, and by that time I'm on staff at People Magazine, and I hadn't really been covering the case for them because I was looking into doing a book, but I decided not to do a book and took their offer of a staff job, and I because they didn't have to move. I stayed in Montgomery County. And, um, and I went to them, I said, can we finally run a story with the accusers? Because they had been working on one, that's why they came to me initially to freelance for them, but it had never run. And so we finally ran it. We had three accusers who were on the record and allowed themselves to be photographed. I found out 10 years later that a fourth had allowed herself to be interviewed and photographed, but for whatever reason, the magazine didn't include her. She was Jane Doe number 10. Um, and we ran it, and they, you know, they were really worried about being sued, so they didn't put it on the cover, and they didn't put it in the weekly press release that, that you put out to, um, uh, that you, to announce the exclusives. So it didn't really get a lot of attention. And let me say that when I got laid off, too, I had to sign a non-disclosure agreement. It's very ironic to me that journalism organizations and the Philadelphia Papers with this latest round of layoffs and buyouts, they do the same thing. They make people sign non-disclosure agreements in order to get a, a severance package. So uh, that's all I can really say about that. But I, part of me was like, I don't know, I had a feeling like this story could come back. I mean, there might be another, there's already 14 women, there could be more accusers that come forward in the future. I don't want to... I can't get rid of this. It was the, they were the only files I took with me when I left the Daily News, besides like some Pennsylvania State Police documents I had. Because um, I, so I packed it up in a waterproof box and put it in my basement. I'm like, I might need these again someday if some other accuser comes forward. Of course, I never expected it to be Andrea Constance's case coming back and getting prosecuted all those years later. But I just, I had a, I just knew that it was possible. This story wasn't over. What was going on in Cosby's career at the time? It was like nothing had happened. Um, he, it barely dented his image. He still got named, like a couple months after it happened, he got named as, uh, in a Father's Day polis, like America's favorite TV dad. He still went around the country doing his town halls, lecturing the, lecturing the black community about how to behave. He co-wrote a book with a, Alvin Poussant about that. He got even more awards and honors. Um, it was like nothing had happened. He joked on stage about drugs. Yes, and I got an exclusive story. It was another exclusive I got. I, when I was doing a story about Cosby's National Enquirer interview, because it was very odd to me that here's a man who could, ha if he's going to talk, he could have his choice of print media. Why the National Enquirer? In fact, he, he hated the National Enquirer so much, he never even, they, they post posted a reward that led to the capture of his son's murderer, which happened in 1990, um, I think, seven. And he never thanked them. So all of a sudden, there's this big interview with them, and there's a whole, but he has a big interview with him thanking them for, belatedly, for posting the reward. And I thought to myself, why this? But so I had to write, but I wrote a story about it, and I called the National Enquirer spokesperson for comment, and in the process of talking to him, he says, oh yeah, and I was just at one of his comedy appearances, and he made a joke about this. And I said, oh, did he really? And I said, well, what did he say? Oh, yeah, he made a joke about slipping a drug in a woman's drink. It was really funny, and the audience loved it. I'm like, wow, where was it? And I got all the details and you know, made sure he knew this was on the record. And so I, I did a story about it. And that's, that's when I got like the worst threat yet from Marty Singer. And I had the exchange in there where he was threatening to sue me if we ran the story because 
Cosby's people claimed he wasn't talking about Andrea Constand in that joke. He was talking about Sean Upshaw, Sean Burks, who was the mother of, of Autumn Jackson, who'd been arrested for and found guilty of extorting him for money, who may or may not have been his child. But he'd had an affair with Sean years ago. And when this, this case popped up again, the National Enquirer called her and said, did he ever do this to you? She goes, well, the second time I was with him, he did give me a funny tasting drink. So they claimed that he was not joking about Andrea Constand in that joke. He was joking about Sean Thompson. So of course I called her to get her comments and you know they just went ballistic on me. Um, but we ran the story and they threatened to sue and they didn't sue. So, and then it's so funny, after the scandal erupted again in 2014, his first routines when he gets back on the road in 2015, he makes a joke about drugging a woman's drink. And like no one picked up my story back then. I think UPI did a little one paragraph thing, nothing. I did, a, I got an exclusive story about how Bruce Castor hadn't revealed to Andrea's attorneys that his father had been the lawyer representing the buyer when Cosby bought that home where Andrea alleged this happened, but he had told Cosby's attorney. Um, and it's, it's an ethical thing. It's not like it's, you know, a, something you file a bar complaint about or something. But still, it was odd that he, he had mentioned it to Wally Phillips, Cosby's attorney, but he didn't disclose it to Andrea's attorneys. Because you're supposed to disclose if you have any conflicts, possible conflicts. And it, since his own father had been a lawyer for the person Cosby bought the house from where this allegedly happened, it's something you're supposed to disclose. You know, nobody picked up on that story either. Were there times you got phone calls from Cosby's lawyers? Very on a regular basis. It was usually Marty Singer. What were the phone calls like? Oh, you like being on TV. They were getting furious to see me on TV, and you like being on TV, don't you? I was going on a lot of the national shows, and my stories were on the Night Rider Wire, and you know, just bullying and trying to get me not to do the stories. And um, and I was like, you know, I was like, look, sure, I love work, working 12 hours a day, then sticking around to go on TV for like 10 minutes, and then driving home an hour and a half. Yeah, it's great. It's a lot of fun, Marty. I mean, I just wouldn't back down because they were just really trying to just bully me off the story. Was the Cosby story your full-time gig at the Daily News or at People? No, I still had to cover other things as they happened. And, you know, in between, I was also working on a profile of Andrea because uh, I, you know, we didn't run all the news, organi a lot of news organizations started running her name and photo without her consent, which was, uh, was astonishing to me. Like, I just saw a lot of the usual journalistic rules being broken in this case. The journalistic rule is you don't run a sexual assault victim's name without, and photo without their consent. But news organizations were doing it. But we didn't run her name and photo until she filed her lawsuit. And I, I called her attorneys and I said, well, can can I rerun it now? Because I was going to run the profile I've been working on as well. And they said, you might as well. It's everywhere. And we could have filed this as a Jane Doe, but we didn't. We used her name. And so um, I'd been working on a profile of her as well, and I'd spoken to a close friend of hers and a lot of her former teammates to build up a profile of who this woman was. So that was another thing. So, um, so yeah, but I was still having to cover other stories that happened. So the story kind of quieted down for It did. It became a court case because she filed her lawsuit in March. Um, that when she settled her lawsuit, it really quieted down in November 2006. What caused it to come back? Hannibal Burris and Dan McQuaid. Um, yeah, Dan McQuaid was a reporter at Philly Magazine, and and this is what's so astonishing to me because I didn't really realize how like <laughs> it was just total serendipity how random it was that he was even decided to go see Hannibal Burris that night. He had Dan had a friend who had a last minute ticket and asked him to go, and he didn't think he could go, but he ended up making the later show. And Hannibal Burris is there, and he he's in there, and he hears. Um, Hannibal Burris mentioned Cosby's name, so his ears perk up because he's, he's like a stand-up comedian. Bill, sorry, Han Hannibal Burris was like a very 
he was, I didn't, I'd never heard of him, little known. He was just a comedian that was just starting to make it big. So he was at the Trocadero Theater in Philly, and a friend offered Dan McQuaid, a Philly mag reporter, a ticket. And he decided, oh, heck, I'll go, what the heck, at the very last minute. And then he, his ears perk up when he hears him mention Cosby's name. So he has his iPhone, he just starts recording a video with his iPhone, because he's like, Bill Cosby, you know, this, this comics, he's known for clashing with young male comics, and, you know, and that, and so maybe this will be an item for me. You know, he's criticizing Bill Cosby in his hometown. And so he just starts recording, and it's that whole, you know, Bill Cosby likes to talk down to black people, that's what Hannibal's saying, and he's like, but, you know, keep your pants on black people, I was in a sitcom in the 80s, so I can tell you how to behave, but, you know, you, you drug and rape pe people, Bill Cosby, you know, and, and it, so he said something like that, if you don't believe me, go home and go home and Google it, Bill Cosby rape, you'll see. So the next day at 4 p.m., um, it was a Friday, Dan posts a story with the video, and of course the lawyers, of course, had spent all day going over it to make sure it was okay. And nothing really happened over the weekend, but a BuzzFeed reporter saw it on Facebook over the weekend, and that mon Monday decides to reach out to the Cosby camp and stuff for comment, and they do a story. And then Gawker does a story, because Gawker had just written about the Cosby case in February, because there were some new allegations, like Dylan Farrow and the, you know, the Woody Allen case. There had been some developments in that, so people also wrote about the Bill Cosby case. And two of the accusers, Tamara Green and Barbara Bowman were interviewed then too by Newsweek. Nothing happened. But this video just goes crazy. And the next thing you know, um, you know, Cosby's canceling appearances, um, he or delaying them, or they're canceling him. And it just continues to grow throughout October of 2014. And um, and then some, you know, new, new accusers start coming forward in mid-November, and that's when I jump back in. because. We were watch I was watching it, and I was going, this is deja vu all over again, right? I wrote all of this in 2000. There's nothing new here. I wrote all of this in 2005, and nobody cared. In fact, I was vilified. The Philly Weekly did a story about me and how the Daily News was out to get Bill Cosby, and they quoted all these journalism experts about how the story shouldn't have been a cover story and how it wasn't journalistically sound. And, you know, if you go back and you can watch these interviews, they're on my website, um, when I was doing media interviews, I was getting criticized. You know, Tamara Green was raked through the coals. And so um, I was astonished, you know. It was like there was absolutely nothing new here. But the difference was there was now social media. Cosby could control the media, but he couldn't control social media. And there was no Twitter in 2005. Facebook was just for college students. No Snapchat, no Instagram. Don't think there was even a LinkedIn. There might have been. So he was really able to control the media, but he couldn't control social media. And that's where this just started to explode. Was professional media different in 2014 than it was there, in it, That was, was slightly different, too. There was also a lot of online news media organizations had sprung up in the meantime, like BuzzFeed and Gawker. And they didn't have this reverence for, like, Cliff Huxtable, you know, Bill Cosby as Cliff Huxtable. They could not have cared less. And they very aggressively went after the story. But it was when the um, new accusers started coming forward and started gaining steam. And he did, then like Scott Simon from NPR, it, it, Cosby and his wife Camille had pre-scheduled some interviews because they were donating some of their art collection, their African-American art collection to the Smithsonian. So they had some interviews scheduled about that. And NPR Scott Simon just decided to ask Cosby about the allegations, but he wouldn't answer. Well, the Associated Press did an interview with him right after that, and they did ask him questions about it, but, um, and it was all in video. And Cosby basically pressured them not to use the interview, and it became this whole thing. And two weeks later, the Associated Press finally released that interview 
but it took them two weeks because it seemed clear that the scandal wasn't going away. And it took them two weeks, but they finally released it. And it's Cosby pressuring them, you know, not, now I'm going to call so-and-so in L.A. He knows me. You don't need to use this. And there was, you could see how he was controlling the AP. But they finally released it two weeks later. And then it was later that in December that they filed the paperwork to get some of these documents in the Andrea's 2005 case unsealed. There were a lot of um, motions and so forth that had excerpts of Cosby's deposition because he had taken a deposition, they had taken his deposition over four days in 2005 and 2006. And excerpts of these depositions, of the deposition had been attached to court filings, but Cosby's people asked the judge to put them under seal. So now the AP decided to go to court to see if they could get those documents unsealed now that this was exploding again. What's the rationale for getting it unsealed? Well, it's, you, know, you have to have a very good reason for sealing court documents. It's usually only supposed to be for like a year or two, but at this point it had been nine. So that was their rationale. And what was interesting is when the judge in that July, um, and the Cosby's lawyers fought it tooth and nail, they did not want any of this unsealed. And when the judge um, finally unsealed those deposition excerpts and the documents in, in July 2015, um, he wrote his rationale was is that Cosby had limited his own right to privacy because he'd become this public moralist. You know, the pound cake speech, the, the town halls and the call outs, that he had become this public moralist. So that limited his right to privacy. And so therefore, these excerpts of this deposition could become public. Now what happened though is a court reporter misunderstood and thought the whole deposition had been unsealed. And they, um, when the National New York Times went to them, they bought, he, they bought the deposition from them thinking, and the court reporter thought it was unsealed. But the whole thing was never unsealed. And But then, so when the whole thing came out, it really exploded, and there you had Bill Cosby admitting to giving quaaludes to women he wanted to have sex with, and admitting to affairs, and... Admitting, oh, he admitted that in the... In the deposition, court. yeah. Yes. Is there a statute of limitations on rape cases? Yes, there is. Were, was the clock running it, out on Well, that? it varies from state to state. And so um, what happened was this once, this, so by the time this deposition was unsealed, there were more than 50 women accusing Bill Cosby of drugging and sexually assaulting them or attempting to do so. And then you had Cosby's admission about quaaludes in the deposition. So the DA's office in Montgomery County, different DA, it's now Risa Furman, who was Bruce Castor's first assistant back in 2005, she quietly reopens the case. But first, you know, they want to know if Andrea will cooperate. Because when Castor announced his decision not to charge Cosby in 2005, he didn't alert her attorneys. He didn't call them. He didn't let them know. He says he sent them a press release, but they found out when the press showed up at their office door. And they had to try to track down Andrea. And again, in this press release, he disparaged Andrea and just said there was much that could make both sides of this, you know, look bad, basically. So um, they weren't sure if she would cooperate given the way she'd been treated in 2005. Um, so Kevin Steele, who was Reese's first assistant, asked Andrea's attorney, Dolores Triani, will she cooperate? And she's like, wait a second, hasn't the statute of limitations run out? Because she hadn't been a, a criminal attorney, a, a prosecutor in a long time, and it hadn't. Aggravated indecent assault, which is a felony of the second degree, it has a 12-year statute of limitations. So it was set to expire in January 2016. Oh, I'm sorry. It was set to expire, yes, in January 2016. So uh, Andrea had a non-disclosure agreement as part of her settlement right. in 2006. What was she not allowed to say or allowed to say come 2013? Well, this was what was interesting. What came out during this whole process is that um, 
Cosby's attorneys had tried to get, uh, as part of the NDA, had tried to get Andrew's attorneys to agree that she wouldn't cooperate with law enforcement if they ever reopened the case. But Andrew's attorneys refused. They said, no, that's obstruction of justice. So she was allowed to file, um, she was allowed to cooperate with law enforcement without violating the NDA. But um, what happened is Cosby, anyway, a few months later, filed a breach of contract lawsuit against her for cooperating with police. After he was arrested, that December, he filed um, a breach of contract lawsuit against her, saying she violated the NDA by cooperating with law enforcement. It, it ultimately got withdrawn, but it was in it. I think it got filed like the night before there was supposed to be a, a hearing on the criminal case. When when you get as many as 50 accusers in a case like this, and you're a reporter, how do you how do you handle that? I mean, it, it, at that point, are they all credible, or do some people just hear the story and think, oh, money, and make a um, well, there was no money. On. There was no money involved back then. Um, what was happening is that I was now part of a team of reporters at People because we had an East, a West Coast bureau. So I was handling everything that was developing on the East Coast. But the editors made a decision early on after we, we did one cover story and we had like 11 of the accusers who had been named and photographed and we ran their photographs. Um, that ran in 2014 in early December. And they decided that we weren't going to really cover it that much unless there was a recent accusation or someone famous. But then um, our West Coast Bureau, Gloria Allred was holding press conferences every couple of weeks with new women coming forward, two or three. So they would cover it online for people.com. Um, so, I mean, I personally wasn't writing about I, an accuser unless I could check out their story myself. So uh, what the first new accuser to come forward was Joan Tarshis. And um, I talked to people she had towed along the way, and I talked to her. So um, we, I did my own vetting when I was when I was um, the one doing the reporting for the story. Well, but we, I don't think I don't know how much a lot of the other media, how much vetting they were doing, because they were it was all coming out, you know, very quickly. I want to read a couple of, of numbers in your book here. You say statistics show that false reports of sexual assaults are rare, as little as between two and ten percent. And you also say. Uh, just 5.7% of rapes end up in arrests. Only 0.7% result in a conviction and 0.6% result in incarceration. Did that surprise you the numbers were so low? It really did. I mean, I knew it was bad, but I didn't have an idea it was that bad until I was doing the research for this book. I, w I was shocked. Well, so at some point, Bill Cosby is charged with a crime. And I broke the news of his arrest on People.com. I broke that story. You said you <laughs> got a tip... Well, In the form of a text. Yeah. Yes. Um, so how often, as a reporter, would you just get a tip from somebody? Did you have to have your all your contacts out there who knew to call? Yeah, I mean, I was, I was, when I, I, when I jumped back into that story, I was like, all these Johnny-come-latelys are not going to get ahead of me on this story. I, I got crucified for this in 2005. They are not going to take this story from me now. And so I, you know, made sure to get in touch with all of my old contacts. I, even though I was supposed to be off during that Christmas break, because, you know, I, I, we hadn't heard anything about the criminal investigation. Kevin, it became an issue in the DA's race because all of a sudden Bruce Castor was running for his old job back against Kevin Steele. And there were television ad um, that Kevin Steele did about it. And then Castor did one responding to it. And Bill Cosby was an issue in that case? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, when Steele won, after that we really didn't hear much about the investigation. So I was like, I don't know, was this just, uh, you know, an election ploy? Like, I don't know, maybe this was. You know, it's December 29th, and we still haven't heard anything. Maybe he's not going to be charged. And I knew technically they had till mid-January uh, 2016 for the statute of limitations to expire. So they still had time. 
but yeah, I, so I got a tip and I checked it out and you know, I just wrote well into the night and my story posted first the next morning and Kevin Steele had his press conference at like 10 a.m. My story posted at like 9.35 a.m. about it that an arrest warrant had been issued for Cosby. So what was he charged with? Aggravated indecent assault, three counts. And just in the, in the uh, Andrea case? Yes. Yes, the statute of limitations had run out on every other case. What was the public reaction then? It seemed like, I mean, even as more of these women come forward, um, you know, I, you know, I, I think there was a lot of outrage at that point because it's, you know, these are all women who don't know each other. And for them to come forward with all of these similar stories, um, and, you know, I've interviewed a lot of them, and you see the emotion that this brings up in them even all these years later. Um, but I don't know, you know, what the, if they were, I know there was one poll done when Andrea first came forward in 2005 in her hometown newspaper in Toronto and they asked people to call in and they, the majority of the people didn't believe the allegations. I don't know if there was actually any polling done, but I do know the media had, unlike in 2005, the media was aggressively on this story now and running a lot of different stories. And in fact, a lot of the media in 2014 did mea copas saying that, you know, for recent coverage of Cosby saying, you know, I should have asked him these tough questions and I didn't. And Ronan Farrell himself did uh, another column like that because Mark Whitaker's bio on Cosby had just come out when this rebroke and he didn't include the sexual assault allegations in the book. So he was doing interviews for that book and Ronan Farrell was interviewing him and was told not to ask about the sexual assault allegations by NBC producers and he didn't until like the last one. And so David Carr from the New York Times called out all of Cosby's media enablers in a story he did in the New York Times, including himself. And Tennessee, I can never say his name right, Coates was one, and he said he should have asked him about it, and finally Whitaker himself tweeted back to David Carr, like, you're right, I should have asked him about it, I was wrong. So, What, what, uh, what do the allegations all have in common? I mean, what was Bill Cosby's method of operating? What was so kind of horrifying about the whole thing is that he had a lot of enablers. So he would go to a modeling agent a modeling agency or agent, and there were two, a lot of them, and, and say to them, I want to mentor so-and-so. And then that, a lot of these women said they were going to call from the agent, oh, Bill Cosby wants to mentor you. So then he would call, and some of them were teenagers, and he would talk to them and talk to their parents. So he groomed them and their parents, gained their trust, and then he would get them in an environment he controlled, and he would drug and sexually assault them. And then he was done with them. Were there For women? For the most part, some of them. Well, I was going to ask, you know, were there women he drugged more than once? Yes, because some of these women, too, were not sure what happened to them. Like Lily Bernard talks about, and she, she had this famous role I remembered from the Cosby show. She was actually an extra. So she wasn't just an extra. She was a guest star. She played the zany Mrs. Minifield, who was this, if you watch the show at all, she was this enormously pregnant woman who was just so annoying to Cliff because he would say, you know, all right, here it is. When your contractions are eight minutes apart, and she go, oh, call every eight minutes. <laughs> you know, it was, and I remembered it all these years ago, and when I finally realized she was one of them too. I was horrified and I was done with the show after that because I was just like, I, I can't even, it, it, she was one too. Who else? Who else on, not the co-stars because Cosby chose his victims carefully. He didn't choose like a Felicia Rashad or any co-stars. It was all up and coming young starlets or women who just wouldn't be believed should they come forward against the great Bill Cosby. You know, they were all like younger, naive, inexperienced women who 
there was a power differential um, where he was very powerful and they weren't, and that's that was the dynamic that worked really well for him. Where was Bill Cosby in his career in, in 2013? I mean, at the peak or in, 2004, in, a in 2014 when this erupted, and yeah. he was in the middle of a resurgence. So the bio, new bio, was out about him. He had a comedy special coming out on Netflix, and he had signed a development deal with NBC for a new family sitcom where he was going to be the grandfather of the patriarch. So he was relevant again. So a combination of these factors, I think, made you know him a little more newsworthy, maybe than it had been even in February when everybody was writing about, you know, when Newsweek did their stories. So um, he, you know, he was, and he would just started his Far From Finished comedy tour. He was about to start that, which was the comedy special that he um, had done on Comedy Central the year before, which got and it got like two or three million views. It did really well. What happened to all of that when he was charged with the crime? Did uh, some of it continue? No, after the scandal exploded, um, the Netflix deal, Netflix special never ran. The NBC deal was plugged, and TV Land pulled all episodes of The Cosby Show off TV, and they still haven't come back. You can watch them still on TV One, but they got pulled off of um, TV Land. So there were a lot of repercussions. And some of his comedy performances that were up and coming on this Far From Finished comedy tour got uh, either canceled or postponed. But some of the venues couldn't cancel because they couldn't afford to. So he still had, and he was getting standing ovations at, at some of those tours. Was he also getting protesters at some of those? Yeah, tours? starting in January because he 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 still did a couple um, when the scandal broke, and then he kind of paused and started back in early January. And his first appearances were in Canada, which is ironic because it's Andrea's home country. And yeah, there were protesters everywhere, everywhere he went, every appearance, you know. But he still. His first one of his first ones back, he did the routine about drugging a woman's drink. When a woman got up, he said, oh, did I drug your drink? And this time it got picked up everywhere in CNN and New York Times and AP, and everybody's writing stories about it, and they're outraged. And Gloria Allred starts holding press conferences and protests with the women, and there are pro protests everywhere where he's, where he's going. But he's also still getting standing ovations. Was, were his lawyers able to put the kibosh on it once he got charged, or was, did that guarantee it was going to go to trial? Um, they tried. They tried their best. They, in fact, Bruce Castor himself came back and was and was saying that this press release that he wrote saying he wasn't going to charge Cosby in 2005 was also an immunity agreement to never ever prosecute, to ever never ever <laughs> charge Cosby criminally with this case. So he's basically saying that this press release was also an immunity agreement. You can't legally charge Cosby because I promised him that he would never be charged in this. Oh, Bruce Castor yeah. came to Cosby's defense? Yes, yes. And then he, there was a big court hearing where Cosby, uh, Castor testified for six or seven hours and talked about this press release, how it was also an immunity agreement and to never prosecute Cosby. And he's still maintaining that, and he's supporting Cosby's appeals. When did the trial happen? How much time between uh, when he was indicted and when the trial started? It was a year and a half. And there were a lot of, you know, they aggressive efforts to, you know, they, lawyers did their job. They did everything they could to try to get this case thrown out of court, and nothing worked. How many days of, of the trial were you there for? Oh, I was there every day. What was jury selection like? Um, that was, see, Cos Cosby had asked for a an out-of-town jury, and the judge agreed. So jury selection was in Pittsburgh, mm -hmm. in Allegheny County. I didn't go to that, but um, because 
I was covering something else. Then the trial was supposed to be in Montgomery County. Yeah, but they were bringing in a jury. They were from Allegheny County because Cosby Cosby's attorneys asked for an out of county jury. They figured there had been too much local publicity; it was pre prejudicial. So the judge agreed to bring in the jurors from Allegheny County. So that's where jury selection was. I think it was the same. I was there for every day of jury selection for the second trial. I was covering it for the Daily Beast. So um, my understanding it was very very similar process. Yeah. In a case that has that much publicity, how do you find a jury that is not biased in some way? Well, what you do is you try to find a jury that even if they've, see, it was a little easier in the first case because a lot of people hadn't heard of the case. So I think that in that way it was a little easier, but by the time the second trial came around because of all the publicity about the mistrial and on and so forth, a lot of people had heard of it. Um, and then the Me Too movement had exploded in between the first and the second trial. So, you know, the, the jurors also had to be questioned about what they knew about the Me Too movement. Um, so I think they just have to say, even if they've heard of it, that they can still make a fair and impartial decision based solely on what they hear in court. What was the first trial like? Who was the judge? Same what judge. Was, what was the dynamic in the um, room? You know, it was, it was interesting. I, I honestly felt like they could, the prosecution could have done a better job in the first trial because I felt like there was still a lot of unanswered questions about Andrea and Castor. Um, you know, had, had put out comments in the media, which is why he's been sued for defamation, saying that Andrea gave conflicting statements to authorities. And, you know, there was still a lot of trashing of her in the media by him and others. So um, I thought they really needed to explain why she waited a year, you know, why um, her statements were, why she had the dates confused at first, and who she really was and why she was there. Because, it, you know, especially at the second trial where they brought in Michael Jack one of Michael Jackson's criminal defense attorneys, they really tried to make the case that she was after money. And my whole thing is like, if she was after money, she got her money in 2006, right? And we found out at the second trial that she got like 3.38 million. So she's after money, she got it. Why is she cooperating with a criminal case? You know, if, she, if she's just after money, it didn't could, even make any sense. Could she have declined to, yeah. to participate? Yeah, when the prosecution came to her and said, would you cooperate if we reopen this case? She could have said, no, I'm, I'm done. I've moved on with my life. I want no part of it. But she agreed to cooperate because it was a very, you know, it was not a closed chapter for her. And she just, it, it, she always wanted justice. She wanted justice more than anything. She wanted, and she wanted to make sure he wouldn't do this to anyone else. And she didn't feel like she got that even with the settlement. You know, he was still free to do whatever he wanted to anyone he wanted. There was nothing stopping him. And that's what she always wanted from the very beginning was justice and that's why she went to police the day she did she'd been having nightmares for a year her parents she had moved back home to go to massage therapy school and her parents would hear her screaming in her sleep and she was having nightmares about people being sexually assaulted right in front of her and it was her fault because she hadn't done anything about it and that morning on January 13th 2005 she woke up sobbing from yet another nightmare and she finally she called her mother who was on her way to work and called her on her cell and finally told her what happened to her she just knew she, she had to do something. Would you talk about the phone call between Bill Cosby and uh, Andrea's mother that was recorded? Cosby had met her through um, a donor at Temple, because um, Cosby, was, of course, was very active with, with Temple University. And he'd been our mentor for 14 months. And she'd been to his house before for dinner with other people and, they, and so forth. And she had decided she was going to quit Temple and go back to Canada to go to massage therapy school to be a masseuse like her dad. And she was nervous about how to tell her boss, Don Staley. And Don and Cosby were close. I mean, there was a big poster of Don, uh, Cosby and Don in Don's office. And he had dedicated the Philadelphia screening of Fat Albert and the Kids movie to her. So he invited her over to talk that night. 
and that the, and she and he offered her three blue pills. He said it was herbal medication because they'd had many talks through the uh, over their friendship about how she liked homeopathic remedies, and she trusted him, so she took them. And within 20 to 30 minutes, she's she's her, she can't she's wobbly. He, she gets up, her she's wobbling, her vision's blurry, and he she can't really walk. And he he escorts her to a couch nearby his, in his house, lays her down, and the next thing she knows, he's behind her and he's sexually assaulting her. And she can't speak. She's paralyzed. She can't speak. She can't do anything. And he sexually assaults her. And she wakes up between four and five in the morning, and he's waiting there. He's greeting her with. Um, in a bathrobe and like offers her a muffin and some tea and she leaves. And so there was this disconnect, like what happened? You know, what, what happened? Like I, all I did was drink a little something and take, I thought that was herbal medication. And here, here's a guy that she just didn't expect to do something like this to her. And he admitted to having done that to Andrea's mother? Okay, so Andrea, when Andrea tells her mom what happened, she's horrified. She's like, what did he give you? Because she had noticed when Andrea came home in April that she wasn't herself, that her behavior wasn't the same, she wasn't the same, and she wanted to know what drug he'd given her daughter. And she was really worried because she says, to, like, why didn't you call 911? How did you know she was going to wake up after you gave her whatever you gave her? And so she tells Andrea, she said, give me his number. And Andrea doesn't want to at first. She's scared. And she says, give it to me or I'm going to get on a plane and I'm going to fly to his house and I'm going to ask him myself. I want to know what he gave you. So she gives him a number and it's an answering service and Gianna, Gianna leaves a message and three days later Cosby calls her back and they have like this two and a half hour conversation and it, he apologizes, he admits to what he did, he says something to her like, well, and Andrew's on the phone for part of it and he, he calls Gianna mom and he says, oh, she had an orgasm mom and Andrew is horrified. She's like, I did not and gets off the phone and um, he says to her, you know, I'm a sick man. But she also says, what drug did you give her? And he goes, let me go upstairs. So he goes upstairs, looks on a, he says, I've got to go look on a prescription bottle. And then he comes back down and says, well, I can't read it, so I'll write it down on a piece of paper and send it to you. And they hang up the phone, and of course, he doesn't. And that, her son-in-law, Gianna's son-in-law is a detective. And the police, too, they had reported it to, suggested if he called back to record it. This will be evidence, you know, record it. Um, maybe he'll say the same things he did on this call and it'll be further evidence for you. Um, and maybe he'll, you know, so when he calls back the next day, that's the, t that's the call she records. At a case like that, how much of the trial is, is kind of routine, kind of technocratic stuff and how much of it is high drama? Yeah, that's a good, that's a good question. Um, you know, it, it, because it was a fairly short trial, it didn't last more than, I think it lasted three, four days. You know, there wasn't a lot of testimony. It didn't really get down into the weeds too much on, on technical stuff. So um, it was pretty powerful. And they, one other accuser was allowed to testify at that trial. The, the prosecution had asked for 13 to be able to testify, and the judge allowed one. So, and I found her testimony very compelling. Um, but it was very, um, I, w I remember I was a reporter in D.C. during the Anita Hill hearings. And um, I was actually wrote this in my book. I remember thinking it was very aggressive and very much attacking Andrea. And I remember thinking to myself, I've, it's like, I feel like we're in 1992 again and I'm watching Anita Hell get ripped to shreds. You know, why did you still talk to him after, you know, he did this to you? Well, Cosby was on the board of trustees. She worked for Temple University. She could not, you know, not return a phone call if he left a phone, phone call for her because she stayed at Temple two and a half more months before she left. And the, the defense was making a big deal out of, there were like 53 phone calls between Andrea and Cosby during that phone time, but they were all 
as she said, related to business with Temple, but it was the same thing Anita Hill got, you know, crucified for with Clarence Thomas. Well, if he did this to you, then, you know, why did you still work for him? So it was all these sort of issues that you thought maybe in the past, you know, 20-some years we would have made a little bit of progress on, but in fact we hadn't. And in fact, we really hadn't made a lot of progress from 2005, <laughs> you know. So, um, and the prosecution, I think, didn't do a great job of, like, sort of letting the jury get to know who she was. And it was an older jury. Um, they were from Allegheny County, which is more rural, um, high school educated, more blue collar. There was like one 81-year-old guy on there. And what they did great in the second trial that they didn't do in the first is, in the second trial, they had a sexual assault expert testify first about victim behavior. And so all of the things, because five other women were allowed to testify the second trial, then Andrea, to sort of educate the jury on sexual assault victim behavior, because it's not, you know, anything that anyone who's not been through it would be familiar with. And there are some things that seem odd, like to a person who doesn't understand that this is the norm, like delayed reporting is norm for sexual assault victims, that 85% of reported sexual assaults are, the, um, the, the victim knows the, their rapist in 85% of the cases. That, um, delay, like I said, delayed reporting is the norm. That getting the chain of events mixed up is the norm. Um, you know, all these things that, you know, that Cosby's people have used to try to discredit Andrea is the norm for sexual assault victims. And it was a brilliant move because it really gave the jury a basis to understand um, sexual assaults. Uh, we're recording this in December of 2019. Where is Bill Cosby right now? Bill Cosby is in prison. He got a three to ten year prison sentence and he just recently did an interview saying that he you know, expects to serve almost the full sentence because he's not going to show any remorse because he didn't do anything wrong. Has anyone suggested he'd be charged with other crimes? There's no stat the statute of limitations passed. He can't be. Unless some new case comes up, you know, within that's more recently or, or within the statute of limitations. Is this your first book? First book. How is writing for a book different than writing for People Magazine or the Philadelphia Daily News? The biggest challenge I had is, um, you know, and when I pitched it, I made it more of a memoir because, um, and that wasn't a comfortable place for me to do because I'm, you know, journalistically, I, I stayed that impartial journalist or I tried to my best, but I was being, when I was being attacked, I had to defend my stories in 2005. So the hardest thing was putting my personal feelings in there because as a journalist, I'm trained to not do that. And, you know, as I say, I don't think I could ever cover this as a story again because a lot of my personal feelings are in there. So that was the hardest part. The other hard part is I had to write it in two months because, you know, they wanted it out quickly. And the only way I really got the deal was to have it done very quickly. And it came out um, a, a year after his conviction. We've been speaking with Nicole Egan. She is the author of this book, Chasing Cosby, The Downfall of America's Dead. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me on. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the PCN app. Visit PCNTV.com or the App Store for details.